And turning your Bibles back to our Wednesday night study is 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 13. And we are starting in verse 15 tonight. Um, it's been, I think, a few weeks because we were away two weeks ago. And then last week, unforeseen events took place. Uh, ultimately, it's the life of David, but uh, Samuel, and in the middle of talking about King Saul, um, King Saul is our focus, is um, the king of the people, the king the people desired. Uh, there'll be another king that comes, and he will appear pretty quickly at this point in the narrative, not today, but soon. And he will be described as a man after God's own heart. King Saul is the man after the people's heart. He's everything that the people want, which means he's tall and handsome. And he'll fight the battles in his own way um, of the enemies for his people. And so um, he fits the um, stereotype of what the people want. And so uh, God gave them what they want. And so and we, we saw that uh, Saul then, um, as we finished up on the majority of the life of Samuel, he's still operating behind the scenes, and we'll see him again. But really, the narrator is, um, has highlighted the character of Samuel and is inviting us to then measure King Saul and anybody else who would come after him up to measure them up against Samuel's character. And King Saul had a great start, seemingly humble. Um, he has a great first victory um, against uh, the, the enemies of Israel, a resounding victory, and gets everyone excited. Everybody's happy about their new king. <clears throat> now the Philistines are the main enemy that have uh, popped back up into the picture. And <clears throat> Saul... This is where Saul's first big failure comes in. And we, again, this is all a little bit of um, recap um, in that he was waiting for Samuel. He was doing what Samuel had called him to do. He was following the pattern that the man of God had given him, waiting on Samuel. Samuel said, I'll be there by such and such a time. And Saul waited till that last day. And then that last day just got tired of waiting and offered up the sacrifice or had some of his men offer up the sacrifice. Immediately Samuel showed up after that and chastised him correctly for moving ahead, ahead of God and ahead of God's man. Because Samuel was the one that was still the spiritual leadership of the people. Saul was the um, political leadership over the people. And that was the agreement that, that Saul had agreed to before God. So Samuel says, because of this, because of your lack of faith and because of your direct disobedience, Saul knew he, he made the, uh, he agreed to the terms that Samuel had given him. Wait for the man of God. He didn't do that. And so because of that, Samuel says, your dynasty, you will not have a dynasty, your generations, your sons, those after you, your grandchildren will not reign as king. However, he has not said that God has left Saul yet and has not taken away um, Saul's opportunity to be king himself. There is still that here, but Samuel leaves 
And it's almost as if Samuel leaves and it's kind of like another test. What will Samuel do or what will Saul do now, now that the prophet has left? Will he repent? Will he turn? Will he go back to the, the, the way in which he started, dependent upon the Lord? And really, the whole rest of chapter 13 and into 14, it doesn't seem that Saul really is that concerned or seeking to follow God's way. It still seems like he's kind of following his own way here. And we're really, with the rest of chapter 13, we're, in, we're, we're given a pretty dire, pretty bleak, desperate picture here. Let's look at 13, verse 15. Some of your translations may add a little bit of historical background after that verse, and I'll read that for you. It says, And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal into Gibeah of Benjamin. And then some of your translations may read, The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. So Saul is, Samuel's left, Saul's numbering, getting his armies together. That's good, doing what a good leader should that's about ready to battle the enemy. And it says, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and we're going to find out more about Jonathan very soon tonight. And the people that were present with them abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Now, I have this map I'm going to be sending around very soon, and tonight you'll be glad to know I have more pictures, so that's always exciting. And, you know, pictures just aren't for children's Bibles. I think adults benefit from pictures, too. So there's some artist renditions here. These aren't actual pictures from somebody's smartphone, okay, of Jonathan and his armor bearer, but they're pretty good idea of what the situation uh, would have looked like back then, and I, I thought they would be helpful. But anyway, on this map that I'll be sending around soon, um, you see here down at the bottom that Saul and his forces, it says Gibeah, also that town is known as Geba, that's what it is on this map. Saul and Jonathan are, are over here. The Philistines are over here in Michmash. You see up here, here is Michmash. And there is a reason they are there that we're about to see here. It's very strategic for the enemy. They're central to the whole land at this point. And there's an important reason why they've established this base there. Let's see why. And the spoilers, verse 17. Now, the only thing we think of spoilers are like movie spoilers today. That's not at all what this is talking about. This is the Raiders. The Raiders, the Philistine Raiders would come out of the camp of the Philistine in three companies. And one company turned unto the way that leadeth to Orphra, which is north. And then there was another one, the land of Shual. And another company, verse 18, turned the way of Beth Horon. And you'll see that on the map as well. And another company turned to the way of the border that looked toward the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. The Philistines are encamped in central Israel here at Michmash. And basically, whenever they want, they can send out groups of soldiers, of raiders, to quell any problems that are going on. And they really have... Israel in a chokehold. They're centralized. If they hear about armies trying to, or, or, or uh, insurrection um, against them, they can quickly send, send a band of marauders or raiders to that area, to the north, to the sides, to the south, and quickly dispel it. That's a desperate situation for Israel, and it doesn't finish yet. 
So the Philistines really have them in what we kind of say is a chokehold, but even more so, listen to this, verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith found throughout all the land of Israel. Well, why is that? A blacksmith's very important, um, especially for an agricultural community who relies on their farm tools. And who also, by the way, relies on their farm tools as weapons. The Israelites were not um, innate warriors. They didn't have, we're going to see here in just a minute, none of them had swords. They, were, they relied on their farm implements when they went to battle. And all of these then, there's no blacksmith to help them repair them, to sharpen them, to keep them from getting dull. Why is that? Here we go. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his plowshare and his coulter or his sickle and his axe and his mattock. And yet they had, now this is an interesting translation here, depending on, on what version you have. It says, yet they had a file for the mattocks. And some versions say that, that gives the charge that the Philistines charged the people for this service like when you borrow or you take money from an ATM that's not your bank, right? They throw in a service fee. Well, Philistines really have um, a good deal here as far as they're concerned because the Israelites have to go to them to have their farming implements sharpened and ready, and then they have to pay them for it. For the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks, and it says in some versions, a third of a shekel for sharpening basically the axes and sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. Only with, but with Saul and Jonathan, his son, was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage or a pass of Michmash, and we'll see more about that very soon. So Saul stakes camp in Geba. The Philistines obviously have all the momentum here. Um, they're centralized. They can send out raiders to quash or quell any rebellion that comes up. And even the main tools Israelites need for their main pastime, which is farming, um, they have to go to the Philistines to have them serviced and they have to pay their own enemy to have them serviced. This is a bleak picture for Israel and we're supposed to catch that. Again, how did we get to this point? I mean, just a few chapters ago, Saul was victorious, and Israel had victory over, and the Philistines had been weakened, and all of a sudden now they have this like stranglehold over them. How did this happen so quickly? Well, I think the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but my summation of this is um, Saul already has shown an inclination to rely on himself rather than God, and certainly the people have, right? The people are thinking, now we have a king. Now we can have victory over our enemies. And God says, no, I'm going to make your enemies so strong that you need a constant reminder that you need me even with a king. And if this isn't a reminder of that, I don't know what is. These people um, are desperate in a desperate situation. And now we're going to see how Saul handles this and how um, his son, Jonathan, as we're introduced to him, handles this as well. But this is a very challenging situation for Israel. And the point is, we're supposed to look this up. Thank you. I love it when your kids read your mind. 
or my wife did and had them get me some water, <laughs> whatever. Thank you. Um, the question is, are God's people, is God's king going to depend upon him to deliver them out of this desperate, desperate, hard situation? Well, let's look at chapter 14 and find out. Now, it came to pass on a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare or carried his armor, his armor bearer, come and let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. Well, where is his father then? Saul tarried or was staying in the uttermost part of the outskirts of Geba or Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in migrant. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. Now, I have to point this out out front here. It does seem, as we continue to examine Saul's character, that apart from the power of the Spirit literally coming upon him, his natural way of handling things seems to lack initiative, and he tends to be hesitant. And almost like we've said today, he kind of drags his feet in situations that demand strong leadership. Now, I don't think this is because he's necessarily fearful. Even with a certain giant that's going to come up in the future, and I won't get ahead of myself too much, I don't really look at that as Saul being particularly um, terrified of this enemy. I mean, he is tall. He's he's the tallest man in Israel. He's he's got that intimidation factor going on. I just think that um, he's he lacks the motivation to respond in a timely fashion. In other words, I really think in this and in other situations, his self-interest many times outweighs his natural interest. He's more concerned about taking it slow and making sure that there's no way that he's going to maybe look bad or they've got all of uh, everything. And it, it's, it's good to be careful. Don't misunderstand me. But folks, sometimes when God makes things clear, and things are pretty clear that the enemy is tormenting God's people and that something needs to be done, there does come a time for action where God has made it clear this is happening, God's people need to respond, and when we drag our feet and just continue to um, meditate and think about it and not do anything, that's not the right response either. Thankfully, though, even in the midst of leadership of a king that's hesitating, of a people that are terrified, God provides someone who can save, who he can use a willing tool to save his people. And he does that with Saul's son. We'll see that in just a minute. But let's continue on verse, verse three. And Ahai, this, this man is important, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, and probably you're still wondering, why is he important, Pastor Brock? Well, let's look a little further. The son of who? Of Phineas son of Eli, a Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. Here's the picture. A rebuked king sits under a pomegranate tree with a priest. Remember the line of Eli that we talked about? This priest, is his line is cursed. So you have a rebuked king, a cursed priest, and nobody knows where the king's son is, and they're just sitting around wondering What's going to happen next? A picture of weakness contrasted with a young man who has initiative, full of faith. Um, and Jonathan here, we're going to see next, Saul's son, is a striking contrast to all this. 
He's full of faith and initiative. And we're going to see he has a let's move forward and see what God will do attitude rather than Saul's, well, let's wait and meditate on what we could do. Sometimes it's good to sit back and think through things. But other times, God expects us to move. When he's made it clear, the situation, you pray, you move. And Jonathan, the youthful spirit that we have here, and just in general here, I'll just say this, although we don't know for sure how old, how young Jonathan was, there is a youth, there, there is a zeal in youth, and I'll also include in new believers, that sometimes um, those of us that are a little older or a little older in our faith, we tend to be more cautious and we need the same kind of balance. It's good to have the wisdom and the caution, but it's also good to have the youthful zeal that also kind of pushes us, all right, let's not sit around forever. Let's do something for God. You need both. And Jonathan here is a welcome addition to this. Youthful zeal, ready to go. Let's see what God's going to do. And boldly moves toward the Philistine garrison camped at the mountain pass near Michmash. It was just described. But interestingly, he doesn't tell his father. Why? Because he probably, although we're not told, knows that his father is just going to tell him to wait. Wait it out, Jonathan. We'll, we'll move when, when I think it's best. Now, he's not being disobedient, but he senses God moving him in this, and he knows his own father's character. And so quietly, um, secretly, he moves out. He's acting on God's call for them to move forward and take action while his father sits under a pomegranate tree. Maybe they're even putting up hammocks. I don't know. They're just kind of waiting. Oh, this is a nice shade tree or whatever. And um, we have all this going on. What does Jonathan do here, though? Again, this is inspiring when we read this. Um, the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. He's gone away secretly. Verse 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock or a rocky crag on the one side and a sharp rock or rocky crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. Um, I have, I have a, um, a quote here from a, a very helpful commentator. He basically says this, their names of these rocky crevices are roughly equivalent to slippery and thorny on either side of these rocky outcroppings. Hardly invite hikers. And between these rock outcroppings, the Wadi Sunawit cuts its deep trough toward the Jordan with steep banks on either side. One might infer at this point that most sane folks consider this point impassable. But Jonathan is going to boldly continue on here. And this is where I thought some pictures would help as I pass this around. Here is probably the area where Jonathan and his armor bearer were in the crevice with these two rocky, I guess, almost like cliffs or hills on either side. You'll see a modern picture of that and where they would have been and the treacherous path that they had to get to to get to their enemy. And then there's two um, artist illustrations here of what this would have looked like as we continue on in the story. Now, I'm going to start on this side. Luke, can you come on up? Not because I'm giving my family preference, but I figure since we have visitors tonight, we'd let them look at the map and the pictures first. Okay. All right. And get an idea of what we're, what we're facing here. This, this is a very treacherous 
idea plan that Jonathan has. And you might even say it's crazy from a human standpoint. And yet he's going to do it anyway. Let's see. Verse six. And Jonathan said to the young man that bear his armor, come and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. Basically, these um, pagan people that are not God's people, that are our enemies. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to, or basically the idea of nothing can hinder the Lord to save by many or by few. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go meet these guys. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in um, less than ideal circumstances here, but God's on our side. And, and, and notice how he says that God may work for us. This is interesting. It's not that Jonathan has lack of faith, folks, but we always have to, and Jonathan is absolutely correct in what in how he's presenting this. He doesn't know what God's going to do, and he's not going to demand that God do exactly what he wants him to do, but he knows that there's a crisis situation, and he has faith in God that God will do something, and so he says, let's just go boldly meet the enemy and let God do whatever God's going to do. And I'm good with that. I trust God. If he gives us victory, wonderful. If we have to retreat, he'll protect us. Wonderful faith. This isn't foolishness here. This isn't not just, this is not just optimism. But folks, this is real faith in action. Faith can arise when no reason for optimism exists. And Jonathan here is not demanding that God has own expectations but he does move toward a desperate situation, expecting that God is going to do something. And what does he say here? Nothing can hinder the Lord to save by many or by few. God, if he wants to give us a victory, armor bearer, he will. Let's just see what God does. I believe regardless that he's going to do something. And sometimes we can move forward, not fully knowing, well, many times we don't know what God's going to do, but we can say, God's going to do something here. And so it's up to him, but I'm going to do, be faithful, and I'm going to act on the promises of my God. Um, this actually, what he says next, is, uh, is bold, but it's strategically incredibly foolish. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. But what is, his, what is the response from his armor bearer? Verse 7. His armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And you really his idea of here. I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan, whatever you want me to do, I'm your man. I'm with you to the end. This is a beautiful picture of loyalty, folks. This armor bearer is ready to go. He has faith in God. He knows Jonathan's character. And he says, that's right, Jonathan. God can give us a victory. Whatever God's going to do, I'm going to be there and see you through together. Wonderful response of a loyal servant of God toward his friend. And then said, Jonathan, here's his plan. It's bold. Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover, or we will show ourselves unto them. We're not even going to try to be secret about it. Let's just go to our enemies and let them know we're here. Yeah, that's always a good plan, right? No secrecy, hiding out, none of that. And if they say, verse 9 unto us, tarry or wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, 
then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. Okay, Jonathan, here, bold, but to our minds, and to a military mind, this plan is crazy, right? It's crazy in its boldness. Let's just announce ourselves to our enemy. Even though we're at the bottom of this crevice, and there's these two cliffs on either side of us, and the enemy's on top of the cliff, let's just say, and I don't know how they did this, right? But I can just imagine Jonathan, hey, hey, guys, we're here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Israelites. And uh, we have a meeting. We want to we meet with you or whatever, however they made themselves known. We want to fight you. That, that's, not, that's not the normal rules of operation for, for victory, right? No stealth at all here. No reconnaissance, no spying out the area to see what the camp looks like. Just call up to your enemy and say, hey, we're here and we're coming to get you. And then Jonathan says, and if they say, well, wait just a minute and we'll come down and we'll fight you. Jonathan says, well, wait till they come down. But if they invite us to come on up, then we're going to climb right up this huge, this steep, rocky slope. And if they let us get to the top, once we get to the top, then we're going to defeat them. Crazy, but bold. Not optimism, but incredible faith shown by this young man and his armor bearer. Folks, do we have even a measure of that kind of faith? Now, Jesus says that even the faith of a grain of mustard seed can move mountains. I'd say that John, Jonathan has that. But his whole focus, unlike his, his dad, who doesn't even really seem to be that interested in what God can do, just wait and see, Jonathan says, let's move forward, and I know God will protect us. It's kind of the same boldness that one might go up against a giant with stones, right? But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, okay? <clears throat> Let's stay in this story. So what's going to happen then? Verse 11, and both of them discovered, did just what Jonathan said, the armor bearer is like, yeah, I'll help you. And then they're both calling to the enemy. They showed themselves into the garrison of the Philistines. Hey, we're here. And when the Philistines said, when they finally saw them, I don't know, they didn't have binoculars back then, but they're looking down and they can't believe, they're totally surprised that the enemy down in a crevice is calling to them. And then immediately they start mocking this. Behold, these Hebrews, kind of a derogatory term, these strange people come forth out of holes. It's almost like they're describing them as prairie dogs. You know, look, these little Hebrews just pop out of their holes and they're here. Well, this is interesting. Well, where they hid themselves, two two soldiers of the enemy and they just kind of pop out of nowhere well isn't this funny and they're kind of mocking them and making fun of them so to speak what did they say next and the men of the garrison answered or they answered responded to jonathan and his armor bearer remember they're probably calling from a distance and they said come up to us and we will show you a thing which probably has the idea of you guys come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson you won't soon forget is the idea here and interesting, it seems, that they're fully, um, they're fully ready to let Jonathan and the armor bearer just climb up the side of the hill. It must have taken them a while. You can see in the pictures what that might have looked like, right? It took them a while. I don't think that they were shooting down arrows or spears at Jonathan and his armor bearer as they're climbing up. 
but they're so confident that they have the strength and the capability. Isn't it interesting that the Philistines have already forgotten the lessons that Israel's God has taught them? Remember what he did to their false idol, Dagon? Remember um, what he did with Saul and, and with other battles? They've already forgotten this. And it's like Jonathan and his armor bearer are no significant to them at all. Maybe they're gambling or something at the top of the mountain and they go back to that and they're like, eh, they'll get up here eventually and then we'll, we'll, we'll defeat them after that. Whatever here. Let's see what happens. What does Jonathan say? Is he moved? Is he intimidated by this mocking and all of this going on? No. He just simply says, um, said into his armor bearer, the end of verse 12, come up after me. We have our answer, armor bearer, the lords, he's going to deliver them into our hand. This, is, this was their test. This is what they said. If they call us up, that means God is going to deliver them in our hand. And he basically says, okay, we just got to get to the top of this rocky crag here, and the enemy's ours. That's confidence. That's boldness. And what happens? And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him, and maybe some of the men are looking over like, hey, guys, oh, don't slip on that rock. <laughs> oh, you almost got, yep, okay, you got that. Oh, they're getting closer. That's pretty good. Maybe they're mocking them as they come up. And they fell as soon as he gets to the top. Um, I don't think the enemy soldiers helped him up or whatever, but as soon as he's able to get to the top, immediately they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. Jonathan and his armor bearer get to the top. Remember, Jonathan has a sword. Only he and King Saul have the swords, and that's all he needs. Take, wipes out 20 Philistine soldiers when he gets to the top. And the rest, if there were any of the rest, are thinking at this point, maybe we shouldn't have let them climb all the way to the top. Maybe we shouldn't have Tried to stop them before they got this far. But whatever, they are sent in a panic and they run. And literally this whole scenario brings panic to the whole Philistine army. Let's continue to read here. 14, and that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men. Within, as it were, half an acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was a trembling in the host or a panic in the camp and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders, they also trembled. And then God sends an earthquake. So he sends a panic into the enemy. He sends an earthquake. And now the Philistines are in an uproar, right? First of all, um, Jonathan took care of those men that were going to teach him a lesson. They're never going to teach anybody a lesson again, right? And now God's going to teach all of the Philistines a lesson. You think they would have learned from the last lessons, but they didn't. He's going to teach him another lesson, and he's using these two young men as his tools, two young men that had faith and boldness to go forward where everybody else was just lagging behind. And this is going to now inspire everybody else, verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. They're watching, and they're seeing the Philistine armies retreat, and fight each other. And again, they didn't have binoculars back then, but somehow they were able to see all this. And somebody goes to get Saul and says, Saul, King Saul, you're not going to believe this. Come. Saul sees this. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, number or count now and see who is gone from us. 
And when they had numbered, counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Now he's, he's not being frivolous or anything here. They're wondering how in the world, why is the enemy retreating and in chaos and fighting themselves? Are some of our guys down there? And so they count. Sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. They're not there. And Saul said unto Hehei, the priest, bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. Now it seems Saul finally thinks, you know, we probably ought to get direction from God at this point. So priest, go bring the ark. And maybe the priest starts to set off to get the ark. And then what happens next, they hear more tumult and they see more chaos. And it came to pass while Saul talked to the priest that the noise of the tumult that was in the camp of the Philistines went on and increased and Saul said unto the priest, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, not so fast. Don't worry about the ark. They're in retreat. We got to get down there and take, them and take care of them. So withdraw thy hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him, you see, Jonathan had already been given the direction that Saul hadn't asked in a timely fashion for, and Jonathan had already received that direction from God because he went forward and took action um, and was used in a mighty way. Saul and waiting around really lost his chance in that regard. But God's going to use Saul, and he's going to use a lot of interesting people here. Watch what happens. Watch, see who's motivated now to fight for Israel. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled, they rallied themselves together. Hey, look, the enemy's running away. Let's go get them. And they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. They're fighting each other. And then that great King, King James word, there was a great discomfiture. They were more than discomforted. This has the idea of confusion. They're in total confusion and chaos in the midst of this battlefield. And here's two other interesting things. Here's something that we didn't know before. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, it seems there were some Hebrew turncoats that had sided with the Philistines because they were so scared of what the Philistines were going to do. And they were actually on the side ready to help fight the Philistines. And all of a sudden they realized the Philistines are fighting themselves. And maybe they see King Saul in the armies and they're like, hey, now is a good time, guys, to stop being traitors and let's fight for our team. Yeah, let's go team. And then they start fighting the men around them when they were just traitors just a few minutes ago, it says, even they also turned to be with the Israelites. They turn around, they're fighting with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. And there's some others as well that find some courage. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in the hill country, Ephraim, maybe that's what the Philistines were referring to when they were mocking Jonathan and his armor bearer, because so many of the soldiers had gone and hid in holes in the mountains. And they all come out and they kind of pop their heads up like prairie dogs. Oh, hey, look, we're winning. Okay, well, let's go out. Let's fight in the battle. We want some glory too, right? And they all come from their hiding places. And when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So Jonathan and his armor bearer saved. No, the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed over the Beth Avon. Bold faith, two young men, ready to be used of God, not in a foolish way, but certainly in, in a bold, energized way, ready to take the initiative. And God says, even with the king lagging behind, I have my tools that I need to bring great victory, inspires the whole nation 
to come around and God gives them a great victory. God gives grace even in the midst of rebellious leaders and, um, and, and leaders that, that sometimes disappoint us, right? God still gives grace and still has people to use, even when some of his leaders are, are very disappointing and, and, and fail in many ways. Um, folks, what I'm trying to say is, even, no matter who around you is failing God and not serving God in the way that they should, you remain strong. You remain faithful. It only takes a few people. It only takes a small church or a small church, Village Chapel Baptist Church. It only takes a few that are, that are ready to be used by God and God can do great things. There are only 12 disciples and then eventually only 11, right? And Jesus used them as well. Don't worry about the odds. Don't get in a panic and try to go it alone without God. Have this confident faith. Let's just go forward. I don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to do something. So do it. Go forward and serve him and leave the rest up to him and see what he's going to do. Even as we pray tonight, let's have that kind of fervor that Jonathan and his armor bearer have. Let's pray boldly and let's not demand, God, you better do this. Let's have faith. God, you could do this and we want you to do something. So we're going to pray and we're going to take that initiative and see what mighty things that you do.